Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Hey everyone, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that for some people, starchy foods aren't just bad for your blood sugar. If you have self-brewery syndrome, your stomach creates too much brewer's yeast and it converts starchy carbs directly into alcohol. That means that you basically have measurable levels of blood alcohol even if you're not drinking anything, which is inconvenient if you're in one of those zero tolerance places where any blood alcohol is uh, is a crime. What do you do if you have it? Well, eating low carbs means you don't feed the yeast and well, you might also consider just killing the yeast with some natural things like grapefruit seed extract or lots of other substances or just go for what works and use some prescription antifungals and knock that nasty stuff down and then quit eating brewers and bakers yeast or nutritional yeast because honestly, those aren't very good foods. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's guest, I'm honored to have on the show. He's an award-winning science and health journalist, co-founder of the nonprofit and totally badass nutrition science initiative, author of 
one of my top books of all time in health and nutrition, which is called Good Calories, Bad Calories, as well as the easier to digest, uh, so to speak, book called Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. None other than Gary Tobbs, the man himself. Gary, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dave. Nice to uh, be electronically here. Uh, you and I met oh, years ago when you were kind enough, right after Good Calories, Bad Calories came out, to speak at the Silicon Valley Health Institute, the anti-aging nonprofit group um, that I'm chairman of. And I got to have dinner with you and, uh, and watched you personally eat a steak, <laughs> which isn't too surprising. Uh, and... F- you are one of the more interesting health writers I've ever come across, having read thousands and thousands of books and papers and all that, for one simple reason. In your sort of your opus there, I couldn't find a wasted word. And You're rare. A lot of people could. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's sometimes you went into a, a lot of detail in good calories, bad calories, but you never just superfluously did this. You're like, okay, this guy at this date at this institution did this, and it was wrong for this reason, but there was no fluff. So it was one of those things where you read it, you're like, like I don't know how one human put all that information together, and it, it was a, a damning account of of what happened politically and scientifically. So just as a piece of journalism and, and as a piece of scientific work, it is unparalleled in any other book I've read. So so hats off and thank you for putting it out there. Well, thank you, Dave. Um, you know what the secret was? I had a, uh, a initial draft that was 400,000 words unfinished. So good <laughs> calories, bad calories, about 500 pages, about 200,000 words. This was 1,000 pages unfinished. And I gave a copy to my editor and I said, who's an amazing editor, and I'm blessed to have him. And he said, could you, uh, is it possible we could make this into two books, you know, like Kill Bill 1, Kill Bill 2, and turn it into an event? And the first book will be on heart disease and diabetes, and the second book will be on obesity. And he read it, and he said, no, it's got to be one book. And then we spent, I spent about, you know, three months of my life cutting it in half and then writing the chapters I hadn't yet written. So that's that's what gives it the feeling of everything in there being... Uh, vitally important is because it started out being twice as much information. I ran into that problem with the Better Baby book, my, my first book. And and the reason that the Better Baby book got published the way it did was because of you. Like you, when I was a, a new author, didn't have any idea what I was doing, you really helped me get introduced to the published world. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, and I, I went through this thing where I have to cut out 50,000. It was only 150,000 down to 100, but I have to cut out 50,000 words, but they all are so important. They're like my children. Uh, when you were done and you wrote that, and then when you, you put down the, all right, so what are we going to do about it? Which was uh, the Why We Get Fat book. Um, how, how did you feel about the final, the final outcome there? Are, are you happy with, with what was published or did you feel like you made a lot of compromises? Well, it's funny. You could... To me, the process of writing the book is a learning experience. So you've accumulated all this information. You've been synthesizing as it goes along. But I actually have to write to understand something. So by the time I'm done with good calories, bad calories, I now more or less know the book I should have written, which isn't necessarily <laughs> why we get fat. Why we get fat is still, as I say, it's, you know, it's kind of the airplane reading, mm-hmm. polemical version of the book. It's the book that people can digest. And I had a lot of readers write to me and say, could you please write a book that, you know, my father could read or my brother could read. But, um, yeah, I'm proud of them. I mean, I go back to good calories, bad calories today when I'm trying to write a third book on this general subject. And I think, how did I do that? 
you know, why, why, what was my brain doing back then that it's not doing now? And I think the primary thing it was doing was not spending most of its time thinking about the nonprofit or children. So uh, Yeah, children can definitely change the way you write. Um, you, you have an interesting background for a, a health writer, too, because you have a BS in applied physics from Harvard and a master's in engineering from Stanford and in journalism from Columbia. Uh, so you, you're a really deep science guy, but you're not a medical guy. Uh, how did you end up in nutrition and medical field coming from from that background of, of relatively hard science? Well, I got out of relatively hard science because it was pretty clear I wasn't going to be any good at, at it. As <laughs> my advisor at Harvard noted after I got a C- minus in quantum physics, um, the journalism was what I wanted to do after I read All the President's Men. I wanted to be an investigative journalist. Uh, the problem is I had never worked on any of the, my high school paper. I hadn't worked on my college paper. When I tried to take journalism classes in college or graduate school, they were limited enrollment. And so the people, kids on the papers got in. Uh, so I got into Columbia Graduate School and journalism because of the science background. This was going to be this sort of brave new world of, uh, of science journalism. And then when I started working for Discover Magazine in the early 1980s, I just stumbled into some stories that seem to me to be very obviously driven by bad science. Uh, the one I remember the most was the Shroud of Turin. We won't go into details, but I remember calling a researcher at Los Alamos at about six o'clock his time on Sunday night. It was about eight o'clock my time. And going through some of his interpretations of the data and basically saying, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Who taught you how to do science? And this then led me into doing uh, my first book. I got to live at CERN, the big physics lab outside of Geneva, and I watched um, uh, 150 extraordinarily smart physicists discover non-existent elementary particles on my watch. And it was a learning experience, again, in how not to do science. And some of the very best experimentalists on the study were kind of explaining to me as they went along what these sloppier physicists were doing. And I became obsessed with this question of how to do science right and how easy it is to get the wrong answer. And then after my second book, some of my friends in the physics community said, uh, you know, I should look into public health because if I really am fascinated with bad science or what they call <laughs> pathological science, I should look at some of the stuff in public health. And one thing led to another. And the next thing I knew, I was looking at diet. And the key about this, if it's not, you know, it's not quantum optics or there were some subjects in physics, so when I wrote about them, they literally gave me a headache. Quantum optics was the prime example. This stuff's pretty simple, and it's pretty basic experimental techniques, and uh, the errors and how the data are interpreted are pretty basic and pretty frightening. And I just got obsessed with it, as many of us do. Not even from the personal perspective of how to eat, just from the fascinating perspective of how bad the science was and how there was this obvious alternative hypothesis. One of the, the things that, that I'm, I, at least I was really pissed off about when I, I stumbled onto a lower carb diet, nowhere near the level of precision of, of Bulletproof or, or Paleo or something, but very early on. I had heard about the Atkins diet, but probably wasn't doing it right. And, and I, I weighed somewhere around 300 pounds. And I just accidentally cut uh, gluten and a substantial amount of carbs. I still had orange juice in the morning. Like I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was you know, early 20s and just desperate to lose weight. And I saw a bodybuilding magazine at a coffee shop. 
where I went to high school, like pretty much you wouldn't look at pictures of semi-naked guys, no matter how muscular they were, like unless you were, you know, a little light in the loafers, to be perfectly honest. Like, like I, I went, it was a small farming town. So I'm like, oh, I, I don't care. Like, I'm going to read this magazine. And it's like how to have ripped abs. I'm like, I, I have ripped flabs at this point. Like, I've been fat for years. I have stretch marks. I'm like, but if these guys have something to say, like, I want to know everything they have to say about it. And since then, bodybuilding has become very mainstream and, and totally cool. But I read this and it was like, fruit can make you fat. I'm like, really? And I tried like, like you know, this little like bullet pointed article from, I don't know what magazine it was. It was one of those like super like guys with like, you know, 15 layers of biceps. And I was, I was 50 pounds in three months. My personality changed. And I'd been trying so hard. I'd worked out so hard before that. And, and it was all about the wrong inputs to the system. And I was pissed. Like for five years, I was like kind of evangelical, but also really angry. Like I was fat and I was tired for all this time and blah. And so what did you feel like when, when you like dug in on the science? Like were you just shocked or, or offended or just sort of like, oh, this is what happens when you get well, groups of people? Remember when I said I had a really good editor, one of the best in the business? One of the things he did once I got a draft that was only about 250,000 words long was take out all my anger and all my sarcasm. Because when you go through the science, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a perfectly natural response to get absolutely angry at the, 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 the terrible science that had been done and how the public health community took it and converted it into these messages that could do so much harm. And uh, but one of the things I kept reminding, remembering in the back of my head is what happened to Atkins, because I, I, in effect, you know, I'm considered an Atkins apologist. And I think for the 1960s, he got it as right as anyone who was working then. Mm-hmm. But he was angry. So you yeah. read his first book and it's full of the he's making fun of the establishment. <laughs> he's being sarcastic. He's kind of pushing the envelope by telling people to eat lobster Newburg and double quarter pounders with cheese, just no bun. And you get crucified for that basically yeah. they 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 want to get rid of the messenger so they throw out the message also and the same thing happened the very first uh article i did on pathological science back in my discover days in 1986 i thought the science was so terrible the article ended up being kind of sarcastic and it ended up working against me and the guy who i was writing about eventually won the nobel prize and i think i helped them win the nobel prize for non-existent phenomenon by virtue of being <laughs> angry and sarcastic when i wrote the piece so i had learned my lesson as i got older which is to keep to yourself and my editor kept saying take the high road take the high road just make the points and move on and then if when the epilogue of good calories, bad calories. He let me express a little bit of my disappointment, but even then, it was in very measured tones. How do you handle critics now? I mean, there are still some people out there who say you know, it's all about calories. You you lock someone in a sealed chamber, and I can prove it's all about calories. Uh, despite you know, I'm going to throw out all of these 57 corner cases where it's not about calories because I want it to be about calories. But um, so when you get those kind of critics, uh, how does it make you feel? And then how do you choose to respond? Well. You know, it's, um, I've been accused of always responding to people by saying you're missing the point, right? And unfortunately, what I think is they're missing the point. And so I want to say, look, you're missing the point when you do, you know, you put somebody in a lock them in a room and you restrict their calories, you're uh, missing the effect on hunger, or you're missing the, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, when you're cutting the calories, you're also cutting the carbohydrates, or you're also working to reduce insulin levels in a kind of artificial environment. Um, there's a 
fundamental issue with all this kind of science where whenever you have these kinds of competing paradigms, almost invariably every piece of obs every piece of data, every piece of evidence could be interpreted from the perspective of either paradigm. And then the key is you have to make some decisions yourself about what you find important and what uh, you know, what studies you think weren't uh, unambiguous enough to be ignored. Uh, when I give my lecture on this called Why We Get Fat, one of the things I like about the lecture is I never mention any research. I mean, I actually <laughs> don't randomize controlled trials or observations. I'm just making an argument yeah. from, uh, you know, various observations that this idea that it's about calories is meaningless and can't explain anything. It's, it's descriptive, not explanatory. And when the people criticize me, I kind of wish they would you know, these lectures, there's probably 10, 15 <laughs> versions of this lecture available online mm -hmm. from different universities or groups that have recorded. And I wish they'd just go through and basically say, okay, well, here Taub says, you know, what about the genetics of obesity? Is that, uh, are the genes involved with obesity determining how much we eat and exercise? Or are they determining whether we partition fuel to energy or fat storage? And then go through each one and, and rebut it or refute it, but they never, you know, the critics I've seen never tend to do that. And so I'm left with an argument that they're not responding to, and instead you get these kind of uh, straw man arguments that you describe. Yeah, I, I've seen as as this, like, okay, I I don't believe, and honestly, your work was some of the, the work that, that helped me to, to honor my own observations and some of the other stuff I'd read, but it was like, okay. I have come to the point where I don't believe saturated fat is bad for me if it's undamaged saturated fat. Like, like I, I'm not seeing the evidence. And when I eat it and I look at my own biomarkers, like funny, my energy goes up, my willpower goes up, my inflammation goes down, my testosterone goes up. Like I am a better human when I eat butter. And <laughs> uh, so but to, to do that and to, to translate that to I'm going to do it for a while in in we'll say in excess, like more than more than I probably should to see what happens. Uh, in order to do that, you you of course are gonna are gonna get some of those those straw man arguments, and a lot of the the critics that that I've come across are sort of the armchair nutritionist types. Like, well, that can't work, therefore it doesn't. Right? But like, that is not science. And like Ansel Keys, I, I didn't treat obese people, but I just know. Uh, and some of the public critics of this this radical notion that if you have fat in the morning, you might get a spike in ketones and that might make you feel good. Okay, <laughs> that, That's the bulletproof intermittent fasting thing. The critics, when I go, have you, so what happened when you tried it? Oh, I would never try that. It can't work. It's a bad idea. I'm like, well, <laughs> you could try it for two days and measure your ketones and measure your hunger and see the difference. But it, it's that willingness to, to take a, a non-risk to, to look at something like that versus, no, nah, I found some studies that refuted that. So it, therefore, basically, everything's a lie. Well, this is, you know, I make this point in Good Calories, Bad Calories, where I have a chapter that, you know, the people who treat obesity and the obese subjects are the ones who have the best experience in knowing what works for them. So if you've been obese your whole life, you've been fighting it your whole life, yeah. you've been trying, you know, as you did, you go on diets, you're hungry all the time. Um, lo and behold, you switch and you get rid of the carbs and add fat in place and suddenly you lose weight effortlessly. I mean, this is something that certainly happens to a lot of people. We don't know what proportion. Mm -hmm. As soon as you do that, it's as though you've lost credibility to the research community. <laughs> I actually had interviews when I was doing good calories, bad calories. I remember one in particular with a, a 
very famous professor at the University of Texas, who will go unnamed at the moment, whose research actually implicated insulin and heart disease. He was one of the rare people who thought that insulin is a causal agent in heart disease. And so the argument would be you should reduce insulin, and if you reduce insulin, you'll have less heart disease, less diabetes, and you'll be leaner. And I finally... He never pushed it to the leaner part of it. And I finally said to him while we were doing the interview, well, you know, insulin also drives fat accumulation on a day-to-day or at least minute-to-minute level, and it's likely it does it on a chronic level. And so they are, you know, what about if you actually lower insulin levels? Um, and he said, well, those kind of studies have never been done. I said, well, actually, they, they have been in the Atkins diet trials. There's about five of them that have been published recently. And he said, now, nah, the Atkins diet works because people eat less on it. You know, that diet's kind of nauseating, and, and the people don't like to eat. And, and now I want to say to him, well, I, I tried it as an experiment. I was one of these people who was actually foolish enough to try it. And as soon as I said that... His response was, oh, you're one of those Atkins diet people. Like I had just exposed myself <laughs> as a cult member because I was willing to try the diet as an experiment. And I said, well, you know, I tried it as it was prompted by the, an economist at MIT, which is a true story. And we were discussing fat. And he said that if you're going to write an article about dietary fat, as I was doing for science at the time, you should try the Atkins diet. So I gave it a context that might make him take it more seriously, but basically as soon as I had mentioned the word Atkins, mentioned that I had tried the diet, let alone that I was still mostly following it, I had become somebody that no longer had credibility to them. And this is yeah, one of the interesting things in the field is that even the clinicians who treat obesity, so the American Bariatric Society, they're full of people who believe that the only way to do it is to get people off carbohydrates. Um, but they don't get a lot of credibility because they're people who treat obese people. Obese people are gluttons and sloths. Nobody stays on diets. There's a whole series of kind of uh, thought constructs that this the, convent, the, the establishment has created to protect themselves from the simple fact that when people go on these diets, they feel better. They're, they lose a lot of weight. Their metabolic risk factors improve. Their heart disease, diabetes risk factors improve. And it's an endless struggle to say just Look at the evidence. Put your yes. preconceptions aside and do what, you know, I was naive enough to do because I had no preconceptions. Look at the evidence. I, I, uh, I, I feel better knowing that you're paying attention to stuff like this <laughs> because, well, well your, your background in science is, is, is rigid. And I, what you're doing with NUCI, the Nutrition Science Initiative, as a nonprofit thing, um, for listeners, if you've never heard of, of NUCI, this is something that, that Gary and Peter Adia, who's also coming on Bulletproof Radio, one of the the top, uh, I would say, low carb, high fat guys out there, um, have put together. And Gary, can you just tell us what what the mission is behind NUSI? And I, I've never been more excited about something. So just just tell everyone about what you're doing and why they should care. Okay, so let me the the, the conclusions of my books basically were that when we focused on dietary fat as the cause of heart disease in the 1960s, we being the medical public health establishment, they, uh, we, um, we decided carbohydrates, sugar, and refined grains were basically harmless. They should be eaten, uh, the, the staple of our diets, and ended up, and we also decided that, that obesity was caused by just eating too much and taking in too much. If, if you eat too much and it's a caloric issue, then uh, the, the problem is, uh, 
you know, dietary fat's the problem because there's more grams, calories per gram of fat than carbohydrates or protein. So we embrace these fundamental ideas that are, are we think of them as pillars of modern nutrition thinking that the conclusions of my book is that they're almost assuredly wrong from partly wrong to almost assuredly wrong and they can be tested. I think they have been tested uh, in animals and humans and, and that's the, the basis of the arguments I make. If they hadn't been tested, I wouldn't be able to make these arguments. But they could be better tested and tested in ways that the nutrition research community and the obesity, diabetes research community would understand and would accept. And so the mission of NUSI is to reduce the burden of obesity and diabetes and their associated chronic diseases in individuals and in populations. The way we think it has to be done is by getting these rigorous trials in humans done that for a lot of different reasons, the obesity, nutrition, diabetes communities simply never did. And so there are these ideas that can be tested as obesity and energy balance disorders that cause just by taking in too many calories or expending too few, or is it a hormonal regulatory defect that's triggered probably by the carbohydrate content of the diet? That can be tested. And with enough thought, with enough rigor, and with enough resources, you can test it. And those are the kinds of studies we're now uh, facilitating, initiating, funding. Uh, it's when Peter and I founded it, uh, we were kind of thinking this would be a nights and weekends type of endeavor. We had one study in mind that we wanted to get funded, that we were uh, kind of embarrassingly naive about both the cost of that study and the amount of thinking that would have to go into doing it and what we would learn. Um, we got support from, uh, it's a funny story, I got an email one day after doing an economics podcast from a fellow who said, uh, named John Arnold, who said he runs a, a foundation in Texas and they're thinking of getting into uh, uh, obesity research and I had mentioned a couple studies I thought should be funded and uh, you know, he wanted to know if I had a proposal. He had listened to this economics podcast. And so I Googled John Arnold. He turned out to be a, a billionaire hedge fund uh, guy who's 38 years old. And uh, I sent it to Peter and we got very excited. And then we had a conference call with John and his wife, Laura, and Dennis Calabresi, the head of their foundation. And the conference call was exceedingly awkward as these conference calls were. Um, but eventually, uh, we had more conversations. Peter went and spent some time in Houston. Uh, they were so impressed with Peter that they effectively said, if you quit your job and become president of this not-for-profit, we'll, we'll bankroll it. And they've been doing it ever since. They're an amazing organization that, that we probably don't have time to talk about in great detail, but um, really kind of extraordinary people and with uh, uh, wonderful goals and how they're putting their you know, money to work. And they've made it possible for us to to do what we set out to do. And now this nights and weekends job is about 60 to 80 hours a week wow. <laughs> to squeeze out everything else. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. It's a constant learning experience, a constant challenge. And and I feel really lucky to be able to do it. I I hadn't realized uh, where the funding for Nucia was coming from, and, and it, it's good that it's someone who's you know, made a, a lot of money who's saying like, "Show me the science." Like, I'm going to put the money to work for something uh, without necessarily knowing what, what's going to happen. And apparently, there's other good things happening. Um, I had a chance at at the Paleo FX conference to meet with uh, Nina 
Tickholtz. I always say Tischholtz. Oh, yeah, I've known Nina for 10 years, and I realized last week that I mispronounced her name, but it's Tischholtz. Uh, I probably said it wrong when I was sitting down chatting with her about this, and, and she had actually mentioned uh, the Arnold Foundation. I said, oh, my goodness, is that like Arnold Schwarzenegger? And it's like, no, no, it's different Arnold. But I, I was blown away to, to find that, that someone was funding Newsy to that extent. And one of the so she she just disclosed it. It's funny, and of course you guys would know each other. She's if you're listening, um, if you've read some of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal op eds about hey high fat, what's going on with this? She's one of the best voices there, looking at like the public policy side of why are we telling people to eat stuff that makes them fat, and even worse, makes them weak and slow before they get fat <laughs> and diabetic <laughs> and diabetic. So. Uh, now, now that we know that you've got the funding there, one of the studies that I'm I'm so intrigued about is one where you're saying for a whole year, let's put this group on a very low fat diet and this group on a very low carb diet, like opposite ends of the spectrum, and actually measure what they take instead of this self-reporting BS where you don't know how much sugar and salt and everything else in your food. Um, this week in Business Week in the print edition, at least I think it's this week it's coming out, there's an article where one of the quotes uh, about Bulletproof is, I'm like, look, Either Dean Ornish, basically Dean Ornish and I are, are at opposite ends of the spectrum, and one of us is dangerously wrong. Right? <laughs> I'm sure that everything that I recommend isn't perfect. It's just the best I know given the totality of evidence that I've seen. But I might have missed something, right? But when the when this study comes out, it's going to be groundbreaking because no one's done anything like this that I've ever seen, and. If I was to predict what I think is going to happen here, I don't think either end of that is going to be perfect. Like people on a very low carb diet for a long period of time, their gut flora may be different. Like people on a very low carb diet may be profoundly weak, but maybe one inflammation marker is going to be different. But at least we're going to have the ends of the spectrum mapped out, right? And what I, I, in this podcast, we're not going to be able to measure all the different markers that, that you would want to look at here. But can you tell me like the three or four buckets of things that you'd be measuring in both of these populations to know whether it worked? Because it, it's not just about how their pants fit, right? Well, first of all, yeah, okay. So it's not us, right? We're funding this group at Stanford, Christopher okay. Gardner and his colleagues. Christopher, uh, in, I think it was maybe 2007, published the uh, A to Z study, which was a, a study of four diets. So A was Atkins and T was a traditional diet. And uh, o was Ornish and Z was Zone. And it was an interesting study that showed, seemed to show that the Atkins diet people did better. But as you pointed out, eh, it was pretty clear after about three months, nobody was eating their baseline diet anymore. So the low-carb <laughs> diet, they were having the equivalent. If you believe what they were telling the researchers, they were having the equivalent of like four you know, medium-sized potatoes a day, which is not exactly a low-carb diet. Um, the uh, so Christopher wanted to go back to this, and he had uh, reached out to the NIH. He had also seen an observation that's interesting that suggested that uh, people on uh, who are insulin sensitive to begin with might do slightly might do better or have better luck with low fat diets. People who are insulin resistant might have better luck with low carb diets. But this raises a kind of crucial issue with this study, and it also will determine to some extent what you know, will be crucial when they interpret it. So one of the conclusions of my research, right, is that sugar and refined grains, white flour, in effect, are the causes of these diseases of civilization, Western diets that we see, so heart disease, diabetes, obesity, gout, uh, cancer, probably, possibly, Alzheimer's, possibly, this whole cluster that tends to go together with Western disease and lifestyles. 
So what they do in these studies, when you think of what Ornish and Atkins have in common, so Ornish is a very low-fat diet, Atkins is a very low-carb diet, but both of them restrict the sugars in white flour, the high GI, high yeah. gluten, uh, grains. And so in both diets, you're removing the what could be the drivers of these metabolic diseases. So both diets should be healthier. Yeah. And so what I would expect is that both groups do, there's people who do very well on both diets. Yeah. And then the question is, and one thing, you know, I hope when uh, Christopher and his colleagues get around to interpreting it, because many researchers in the field don't do this, they don't realize that they're starting even a low-fat diet, they've restricted the you know, the evil carbs or the purportedly evil carbs, whatever you want to call them. Um, and then they're measuring, they'll be measuring, uh, I think the, he's doing gut biome and he's doing uh, uh, all the heart disease, diabetes risk factors. And yeah, waist size will be part of it. Weight will be crucial. But, um, you know, again, it'll be interesting I, because we will learn, we should finally learn uh, Christopher and his colleagues are doing a better job than anyone's ever done before of keeping people to these extremes. So the low carb on average will not be as low as an Atkins diet, but it'll be closer than it's ever been. And the low fat will not be as low as uh, Dr. Warnish would prefer, but it'll be closer than it's ever been. And we'll learn a lot just about those extremes. But what we won't learn is what are the effects of sugar and white flour, because those are pretty much removed from both diets. And it, it, it seems like, at least given what I know, it, it seems like it would be unethical uh, to take uh, even a prison population and put them on a sugar and white flour diet. Because we kind of know what happens. Their teeth fall out. Like, well, this is, this is why, <laughs> what Christopher was thinking when he, when he designed that diet. Is he's going to put them both on, on a healthy diet. And what's yeah. ironic is in, two, so in 2002, when I first I wrote this piece for the New York Times Magazine, um, uh, what if it's all been a big fat lie, suggesting that uh, you know, it's a, the, the sugar and the grains that are the cause of uh, obesity and metabolic disease is not the, the saturated fat. Uh, I got pilloried oh, yeah. in part because I was saying it's not the saturated fat and in part because I was, um, I was saying it is the sugar and, and refined flour. And now 13 years later, it's sort of, <laughs> this is the baseline. Everyone says, well, of course you shouldn't eat sugar and white bread. We all knew that. We've always said that. And now the debate is about whether or not how bad saturated fat is and what you replace it with. And, and the other question is how bad are plant oils? <laughs> because one of the problems that, that I ran into just in, in managing my own cognitive performance and my own 100-pound weight loss is that when you say you know, fat – there's 30 different lengths of fat and they can all be oxidized or not oxidized. Uh, and there are also fat soluble compounds that are often found with some fats and not with others. And so when you say fat or even saturated fat, like butyric acid, you know, 5% of butter that gives it that sort of buttery thing and also makes your feet smell bad. It has a profoundly different effect on brain inflammation than say palmitic acid, another saturated fat. So even when we get to saturated fat, it's like, well, which saturated fat? And did you fry the crap out of it before you ate it? Because that variable probably matters. Uh, and, and then you end up getting to this, oh, no, I'm paralyzed by the requirements for perfection in the study. And we can only eat palm oil blessed by monks and stored hermetically. <laughs> um, how are we going to get around those levels of things, which really seem to matter? Well, they could matter. Again, it's funny because this is, was a lacuna in my research. And one thing I get criticized for is people say, so we didn't pay any attention to vegetable oils. 
So one of the things I was doing in my books was that one of the key observations is this observation diseases of Western diets and lifestyles. So when you, you start off with these traditional populations all over the world, indigenous peoples eating their traditional diets, and they made a host of things that kill them, but what doesn't kill them is heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes. Uh, they don't seem to get arthritis. They don't get can Again, cancer was a, a common observation in all these studies. And this was from like the 1880s to... Uh, well, you could follow it through to the to the dawn of the 21st century in some populations. So the question I was asking was, what causes those diseases that appear, this cluster of metabolic diseases? And they appear in those populations when they start eating Western diets. And when most of those populations, it's sugar and white flour. So that's what I focused on. Um, you'd see these diseases begin to appear before there are any vegetable oils of any quantity, if at all, in these diets. Um, but it doesn't mean these vegetable oils are harmless. It also, but it does mean that you can get obesity, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, without them. And that's kind of the issue I'm trying to, so the, the issues that I'd like to see our research settle is, is obesity caused merely by eating too much, in which case, no matter how you phrase it, it turns out to be some variant on a gluttony or sloth disorder, yeah. which I think is horribly naive and uh, intolerably cruel to the yes, population. Yes, as a formerly fat guy, <laughs> yeah. yes, it's cruel and it's not true. Yeah, well, this is, you know, this yeah. idea, especially with obese children, they're, they're, they're tortured by their obese condition, they're tormented by their peers for being obese, and then the medical community tries to get their parents to starve them on top of this, when we know that starvation is one of the, you know, the, the should, if it's not one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I think it might be, famine is. Yeah. Okay, so we got that settled. We're, we're, we're <laughs> it's, okay, I can't even go into it without babbling. I'd like to settle that issue. I think that issue can be settled. Is it a hormonal regulatory disorder? And if it is, it's probably, I'd say, almost assuredly triggered by the kind of carbohydrates we eat. The vegetable oils might play a role, yeah. and I'm not saying they don't. And then the other issue is if we can get people off this dietary fat obsession and get the research community paying attention to the right variables, then they'll do their job. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll learn the truth. The problem is up until now, they've embraced these preconceptions. They've thought they've been based on sound evidence when if you actually do the exercise of looking to see if they are, you find they're not. And those are the kind of things that I would like to focus on. There are two things that, that stood out uh, in, in the research from my book that are just that undeniably scientifically break the calories in, calories out. Uh, one of them comes from animal husbandry uh, or industrial livestock operations, more accurately. And they have a metric called feed efficiency, which right. is how fat per calorie will the animal get? This you know, metric cannot exist if it's calories in, calories out. But I, they, uh, there's I, a I drug that yeah, goes I, in the cow's ear, 30% increase in feed efficiency. Okay, calories in, calories out is dead at that point, right? Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. I was I I was gave a talk at a bull auction in Nevada in early oh. March, and uh, I love these because I'm I'm a city boy. You know, in the first edition of Why We Get Fat, I had a picture of a a a, a, a bull, and I had labeled it a cow. That's how ignorant I am. I got all this 
hate mail. I didn't have horns. What do I know? Um, I got all this hate mail from people in West Texas saying, if you can't tell the a bull from a cow, how the hell are we going to trust your judgment right. on anything? So yeah, don't, don't be milking that bull, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but anyway, I did this bull auction. One of the lectures was from a, a professor of agriculture, livestock agriculture, a veterinarian at UC Davis on this, this feed efficiency. And I said to him afterwards, I, I said, basically, I'd never heard of this before. And I said afterwards, and this was just a month and a half ago, like, we have to talk. Yeah. Because if you guys think that way, why does anyone in the obesity research community think differently? And yet they do. And, and the other thing that's scary is if they did something to the cow to make it gain fat faster, maybe when you eat that cow, it's going to do the same thing to you. That's possible. But again, and then I get back to my, my Western diet. Uh, analogy, which is you can make people fat, uh, you know, for instance, Native Americans, they wouldn't have been eating uh, cows in which that had been done to them. But by, you know, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, you start seeing diabetes and obesity yeah. erupting in these populations long before we started manipulating our cattle. So you're, you're there's absolutely a lot right. of issues that might be making things worse, but they wouldn't have been the initial trigger if you take a historical yep perspective. Uh, the antibiotic question is another one that, that I can I could imagine how it has an effect, but I have trouble fitting it to the data that its effect is primary. Have you seen the, the germ-free mouse feed experiment studies? Uh, the ones, which, which version the, of the germ-free mouse? Well, the, this is one that, that came up uh, as part of like the, the maybe why bulletproof coffee, like a hypothesis, not a proven hypothesis, but like why did I keep losing weight eating way too many calories when I was doing this coffee thing? And they take germ-free mice and they can overfeed them and they stay lean and ripped and they make the right amount of fasting-induced adipose factor. And they take these same mice and they put like one cube of mouse poop into their cage, which makes them no longer germ-free, and they're 60% body fat two weeks later. That's like, interesting. Whoa. And so then it's a question of what's growing in the gut, and there are studies now, uh, particularly mice or rat, uh, where they look at this, and it turns out that there are some species of bacteria that amplify our fat storage and amplify our fat burning because let's face it we're basically a walking petri dish for them and they figured out how to hack our hormones to make sure we have extra fuel in case there's a famine and whether this is a primary effect a secondary effect i don't know but does it matter yes well this is what so what it matters <laughs> is ultimately can you manipulate the bacteria so that's the goal right when people talk about yeah. this they say, what we're going to be able to do is we're going to manipulate the bacteria you don't have to change how you eat. Like you, Dave Asprey, you're mm -hmm. you know, he's 300 pounds. We're just going to give you the drug. It's going to change your bacteria, and you're going to become thin. You don't have to do anything differently. That's kind of the fantasy behind this. And the question, of course, is, is that true? Are they dreaming? One of my problems with mouse and rat studies, I'll tell you my favorite quote along these lines from, yeah, I had the opportunity to spend 25 years doing nothing but talking to scientists for a living. Mm -hmm. and I, um, for whatever, good or bad, they polluted the way I think, or they influenced strongly <laughs> the way I think. And there was a, an old cancer, Italian cancer researcher at Thomas Jefferson University um, who said to me, we were talking about uh, rat experiments. He said, you know, Gary, if you can't cure cancer and a rat you shouldn't be in this business it's so easy <laughs> they're not people and they have super livers and they don't use their kidneys for anything which totally changes you know well, so here's the that. the other 
quote along these lines is, um, you know, they, people talk about animal models. So this is an animal model of human obesity is the idea. But the problem with models is you never know how they differ from the real thing, and you never know about what assumptions you're working under. And when I grew up in the physics community, so the hard-ass experimental physicists used to refer to a, a paper that was based on a model. So if it was model-dependent, that was a synonym for I don't have to read this paper because life is too short. <laughs> Nice. So, uh, very good shortcut. You know, it could be all these things could mm -hmm. be true. They're hypothesis generated. Yes. But until you test them in humans, you have no idea what the effect is. One thing that we do know is that you can suppress gut bacteria with a high fat diet, which is interesting. And that is shown in humans. And you can also increase some kinds of them by eating more antioxidant vegetables and things like that, which both Ornish and Atkins would have been proponents of. You eat right. your leafy greens, right? So, like you said, these are all hypothesized, and there's some evidence that these might be true. And I found like eight reasons why only fat with polyphenols in the morning could do interesting things to your biochemistry. But knowing which one or combination of those is doing it, I don't know. But I do know that I can cause a repeatable effect with this little biohack. And Well, that's why so much yeah. of this is about self-experimentation, yeah. right? It's like we lay out what we think are the basic rules of the system. And then within those rules, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of individual variation. A lot of phenotypes have been triggered. And then we all begin playing with the various uh, the, the variables involved, the types of fat, the amount of fat, the timing of the eating. You know, are we going to intermittently fast? Are we, there's a, uh, almost an infinite variety of things we can manipulate to see how they affect us personally. One thing I always said about diet studies is if you're obese, you don't need a randomized controlled trial to tell you if a diet works. <laughs> if you go on the diet and you're suddenly 40 pounds lighter, which is a common phenomenon, that diet worked for you. Yeah, what you need to know now is long-term effects. You know, For instance, you could starve yourself. You'll lose 40 pounds. Can you keep it up? Or is it, have you fixed, by the starvation, have you fixed this metabolic disruption that caused your obesity to begin with? And then is, are you going to live longer? Um, yeah. There's a lot of things we do that make us feel better. Like I have terrible tinnitus, which is a technical term for what lay people call tinnitus. And I try to pronounce it correctly, and then people don't know what you're talking about. So tinnitus is earring. And, yeah. uh, you know, it sounds like I have a, sometimes a hive of bees in my head. makes it difficult to think. Um, could be that I had too many concussions as a youth, could be a genetic thing, could just be bad luck. I also worked in a lot of, I bounced in rock clubs through college and, and graduate school. There's a lot of reasons why I could have this. It's annoying. I will do anything to make it feel better. So I will take massive doses of ginkgo biloba. If it suppresses the tinnitus, I'm happy to have that symptom suppressed. I don't know if the ginkgo is going to kill me in 10 years or 20 years, at which point people blame it on my high fat diet, but it could be the ginkgo. <laughs> But it's a trade-off you're willing to make. So you could always, if you have a symptom, you do the experiment, you see if you feel better, and then you make some kind of trade-off between, it's naive to think it's not going to have long-term yeah. consequences, or you're not going to be in the situation like I could be in where the tinnitus comes back, but I'm already taking massive doses of ginkgo, and if I give up the ginkgo, it will be even worse. You never know. But if you got a symptom, you can experiment and see what happens. At the end of this show, I'm going to send you an email to introduce you to a neighbor of yours in Alameda, a Dr. Dwight Jennings, who's been on the Bulletproof Radio, who has helped like thousands of people with tinnitus by changing the pressure their jaw puts on uh, the trigeminal nerve. 
Um, but hey. since he's your neighbor, you totally just need to go see him once and see if if you're a candidate because his stuff, he realigned my jaw, changed my whole brain. It, it's remarkable. So I, I'm I'm going to do that if that could help I'm you. There. I'm there. I'm holding you to it. As you know, I will try. Yeah. I will experiment on almost anything if, if I think there's a that, that there's a benefit. So. I, I didn't realize that that was a, a big issue for you. So that, that that's one of the more powerful things that I've had happen to, to my health was getting my jaw working. So my nervous system worked better and I'd never get ringing in my ears. I never had a big problem with it, but it was like once a week, this thing would pop in. Never. Excellent. So going back Could to the also self, email him and tell him, tell him to fit me into his busy schedule. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. His schedule got more busy after he came on the show, but I'm all email introduce you directly to his private address. Like you guys need to see each other. Cause, uh, you know, if we can if we can do something that helps with uh, distractions, then you'll just do more good work. And I like your work. <laughs> okay, and there's one other issue here, by the way, just for your your our viewers, um, could be a placebo effect. Yes. And I am all for a good placebo effect. I'm willing to embrace <laughs> a placebo effect if I feel better. You know, I don't care if it's a placebo effect or not, but yeah. I will try. And generally, if if it works forever, that's great. But if a placebo effect, they often drop off over time. And like, like if it doesn't drop off, great. Hey, so let's let's run that test. Sugar but, book finished. There you I go. Be happy. I can't wait to see that one. Now, here's a question for you. So, so you're open to self-experimentation, as I believe all good scientists are. That whole observation part of the scientific method. <laughs> um, what do you eat for breakfast? What do like, I eat for breakfast? Has it changed well, I, over time? Yeah, no, it's the same. I'm I'm a creature of habit. I'm one of these people who's happy to eat the same thing every day. So it's pretty much eggs and bacon every day. Uh, I eat, you know, they're they're pasture fed, uh, ridiculously expensive eggs that I could buy out here in Berkeley um, effortlessly. I, it's funny. I used to you know complain about how much eggs cost in New York at the supermarket. Now I move out here and I buy pasture fed, pasture raised <laughs> eggs that are twice as expensive. Um, but uh, and I have no idea if that's good or bad. It just seems like a reasonable thing to do, and they definitely taste better. So yeah. uh, anyway, that's yeah. I, I breakfast is eggs and bacon. The rest of the day, it's just some kind of uh, you know uh, the meat, fish, or fowl with green vegetables. And, and uh, are you picky about grass fed versus grain fed? Uh, yeah, I I do grass fed. Although I tend to. Uh, the, the, my local one of my local gourmet butchers uh, carries Neiman Farms uh, meat, which is finished on grain, and I have to say uh, it's it's pretty delicious. <laughs> There's a reason why that happened, but even the the grain finishing is is an interesting story because people tend to blame it for a lot of these chronic diseases. But you could go back to the 19th century, and most of the corn raised in America in the 19th century was raised to finish beef on. So it's not something we've recently started doing. We've been doing it for quite a long time. The, the difference doesn't mean it wasn't unhealthy then, by the way. Just Yeah. The the difference I would uh, I would posit makes a difference is that the corn we raised back then wasn't ninety eight percent contaminated with fusarium and fusarium made about five hundred times less mycotoxin, which is fat soluble. And that that's that has to play a role. <laughs> okay, so here's the issue. Here's the experiment. If I eat none of the Neiman Farms meat for, for let's say three weeks and do just the um, Marin Farms, which mm -hmm. is yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, wonderful. Uh, one of my other local gourmet butchers. How am I going to feel different? If you are doing other things in your diet to minimize but not eliminate uh, mycotoxins, you'll probably see a measurable difference in uh, say if, if you do, to do like a ten minute cognitive function, executive function, finger tap time, vigilance test, uh, three in-back testing. 
Um, at least that, that was what I found from reducing mycotoxins in, in coffee was that there was a difference. And in my own life, I, I'm a canary for these things. I, I feel the difference because I live with stachybotrys. Right. Uh, I, I very much can tell the difference between grain-fed and grass-fed beef, not from flavor, but from how I feel two or three hours later. So I'm an extreme responder. Everyone isn't like me. But when you take people who aren't dealing with chronic inflammation from uh, autoimmune conditions brought about by this – that there's still a cognitive or very importantly, a hypoglycemia effect that's caused by these things. So it's, it's one of those things where if, if you tried it, maybe you feel it and maybe like Dave's completely obsessed with like food toxins and anti-nutrients. Okay. Maybe that, that's a fine argument to make. I would just say, is there a difference? And you know, what, what's the evidence and can you tell? So I don't know, but maybe it's worth an experiment. If you're going to experiment, um, the other guys in Berkeley that you may have already met, uh, if you don't know them, I could introduce you. It's a uh, Bobby and Yermas who run Mission Heirloom, which is just the the most. We'll put it this way: it has the highest standards of any restaurant I've ever been to. Everything is grass fed. Everything is local. I, I, I've known them very, like know the the founders very well. They're more obsessive than I am uh, <laughs> about food quality, which is saying a lot, and it's a great compliment to them. Um, so if you've never eaten at Mission Heirloom, it's I think it's off Shattuck, you, you got to go by there once because they'll make the most perfect eggs and the most perfect lamb or steak, whatever you like, that you'll ever have. Okay, well, I'm, I'm happy to do that. So cool. you got a deal. So that's what you have. Basically, you're having uh, good quality meat, even if it's not all grass-fed, lots of leafy green vegetables, cooked or raw? Uh, both. Both. Cool. Uh, and uh, And you're doing this regularly and you're feeling pretty good? Well, you know, if I finished my sugar book, I would be feeling pretty good. <laughs> um, again, it's uh, – I, I have the equivalent – well, you probably have the same phenomenon. You seem to have more uh, joie de vivre than I do. But I have the equivalent of about three different lives with uh, – three different work lives with no, no, uh, uh, no assistant. And, uh, you know, I just turned 59 and I have two young children. So uh, – I could do better on a lot of different areas, particularly sleep <laughs> and uh, kids sleep you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. Say less than seven days a week would be nice. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things I can improve to improve my sort of state of mind and energy. But uh, uh, this is a, a Skype call, but uh, you know, I I did get a, a chance to hang out with you in person a, a while back, and and you actually look like you're doing really well, and and that's always a good observation, <laughs> right? Well, that's always key. It's like it doesn't matter how old you are inside. It's that you still look like you're functioning. Um, uh, all the best doctors can look at you. And before you, there's an examination, they kind of know. You look at the skin. You look at the eyes. You look at the energy. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, not being a doctor but being a guy who's just doing a, a comparison with a wide range, I'd say you're, hold, you're hanging in there pretty well, especially for a new dad <laughs> who's well, my, got a really busy my, life. My goal in life now, I have an obsession, which is the concept two ergometers, the rowing machines. Mm -hmm. And I used to do these as a kid, being meaning until I was about 35, and then I quit uh, for a while, and now I've gone back to it. And they, they have rankings online. So you can, uh, you can do your scores, your times for 500 meters, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000. You could put them online. I actually haven't put any online yet, but my goal is at 59 to get to sort of 90th percentile in, in a few of the key races and realizing wow. that I only work out about twice a week for 20 minutes. <laughs> and 
Um, we'll see if that's doable. I've definitely done it for the, the shortest distance, but that would be the one where endurance would be, of course, less of least uh, uh, of a factor. So, Well, well there's, a, there's a question that I ask everyone who comes on Bulletproof Radio, and it is the final question in the show. It's given all the stuff you know, uh, both from your, your hardcore physics background, nutritional research, and everything else, just life your top three recommendations for someone who wants to perform better as a human being. I, I don't mean athletically. I just mean you want, you want more of whatever it is you do. What, what matters most? Those three okay. things. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while <laughs> and, uh, all I can tell you are the things that would work for me. And again, you're talking to someone who's got a sugar book that's three years overdue. Um, so there's this uh, possibility that when it comes to actually performing better, I really have no clue other than, okay, so get rid of the sugars and the white flour in your diet. That's, yep. that's a, a definite. I think that's going to make anyone healthier, whether they're a vegan or a hundred percent carnivore. Um, I got to say, get rid of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a first. I know this is counterproductive for somebody who's got a podcast, but uh, you know, I mean, you think about how much time we waste. Uh, and uh, what's my third is going to be? Um, it's got to be getting enough sleep. You know, that's that's if I can get seven, eight hours of sleep for five days in a row, I'm an entirely different. Uh, person. It's interesting. I describe my writing. Uh, it's always been Sisyphusian to me. So basically you wake up in the morning when you have a book to write or an article, it's wake up in the morning, push the rock up the hill. Mm -hmm. And then it rolls back down. You wake up the next morning, you push the rock up the hill. Eventually you get it to the top of the hill one day and then you start editing and everything's cool and you begin enjoying life again. I've never been a fan of writing. I love researching. When I don't get enough sleep, I can't push the rock. It's just that simple. It's like you walk around the rock, you put your shoulder against it, you, you know, try to take a running head start. It just doesn't move. You get enough sleep, the rock moves. Um, I can't. The question is, often we don't get enough sleep because we're waking up at three in the morning, worried about things. Those are the kind of issues that you'd probably be have good advice about. Um, just wake up to check your email. I, I mean, that's a... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so that that's my advice. Those that, are the three things. That is, that's uh, awesome advice. And coming from someone who's not just a, a pretty good scientist, but also uh, a successful author, uh, that that's particularly interesting because you've you've outperformed in multiple fields, which is just kind of cool. So I, I I've asked this question of you know, Ariana Huffington and, and Tim Ferriss and um, you know, Brenda Burchard. Oh, what did Tim say off the top of his mind? I, off the top of my head, well, I've actually had him on twice. And most recently we talked about learning. We didn't talk about his top three and he was on like a hundred episodes ago. I don't remember his ones, but I imagine sleep was in there somewhere. It's always worth hearing his advice on improving performance. If anyone overperforms in all areas of life, it's a Tim Ferriss and maybe a close second, my colleague, Peter Atiyah. So. Peter's uh, just an amazing dynamo from what I hear. I, I can't wait till he comes on the show. He's I, like a couple weeks out. He'll, he'll be on. And uh, Tim, by the way, has a new TV show. So uh, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard about the Tim Ferriss experiment on iTunes, um, it's really see, cool. See, there's more internet. That's the issue. Well, this is more like TV. It, it just <laughs> kind of delivered over that bad internet. But the what he did is, is Gary, he went out and said, 
you know, I'm going to learn a new skill. Like I'm going to learn how to be a professional drummer. And at the end of the week, one week of learning, I'll go live on stage with foreigner as their drummer. And so just, just the amount of, of focused learning and high performance in one week, and, and it, it just gets more ridiculous from there. So it, it's, it's a pretty fascinating thing. Uh, it, when you look at Tim as just a high performer, like how the heck do you do that? And I'm glad I didn't have to do it because <laughs> I, I don't think I would have done it. So, well, uh, Gary, where can people find out more about your books? I, I know there's there's good calories, bad calories. There's why we get fat. Uh, what website should they go to? Like, like tell them how to find you because you're you're a pretty well, well known guy. But website is GaryTaubs.com. Unfortunately, it's been lying fallow for about two years as I've been uh, dedicating those two years to Nusi and the sugar books. So I have to write at least an explanation for why I've been gone. I get an email from emails from people on occasion through the website saying, "Yeah, you know, I read your books. They're very compelling. I've started your diet, but I noticed you haven't blogged since 2012. Have you died of a heart attack? Could you please get back <laughs> to me? So I have to, uh, I have to update that, but that, that's, that's the main point. And then NUSI.org is the, uh, org is the nutrition science initiative and you'll see what we're doing. Um, we think it's exceedingly important and we're, would love all the help we can get there. So. Gary, uh, thanks again for coming on Bulletproof Radio. It's an honor to have you on, honor to talk with you and just thanks for all your work. Well, thank you, Dave. It's a, it's great to do it. And, uh, very impressive. If you enjoyed today's episode, I certainly did. Uh, do me a favor and go out there and pick up one of one of Gary's books. Uh, if you want the long read that'll just completely fill you with science, good calories, bad calories, you want the Cliff's Notes, or Why We Get Fat, and uh, check out what Newsy's doing. And while you're at it, uh, check out some of this cool new Bulletproof stuff like the new Zentech shield that you put on your iPhone that blocks the blue spectrum of light that lowers melatonin. So that way, if you are going to use the internet before sleep, shame on you for doing that. At least you won't wreck your melatonin for the next four hours. So uh, check out that new tech. It's called Zentech on Bulletproof.com. And have an awesome day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.